I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 84. So we've come to the end of our summer and uh, you're not yet in uh, uh, begin it, ready to begin our or resume our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, we thought we would take this opportunity also to share some things that are pertinent to us as believers in Christ and particularly as a church. Um, that uh, one aspect has something to do with our vision and also uh, our, our regular practice. Uh, and Psalm 84 gives us a, a wonderful insight um, or example of what God promises us to be able to experience as we come into his presence for worship. The focus this morning will be on Psalm 84.10. But for context, I'll begin reading in verse 8. Hear the word of God. Psalm 84, 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is he, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, as we come and give ourselves to this time in our worship, we give ourselves fully to you, our ears, our minds, and our hearts. And yet we come confessing that we know that our ears are often blocked by our own ideas. Our minds tend to be closed or at least made up you seeming having to prove yourself over and over again because the affections of our hearts wander and are given out so freely. But Lord, you are the glorious king. You are the redeemer, the one who has created all, the one who not only has shown us what love is, but by very nature is love. We pray that you would take our hearts and open our minds and open our ears that we may hear your voice and from your voice that is recorded in your word through the psalm be guided by your instructions and know that they are love that we may respond to you as well as being shaped in our lives and in our worship to your glory to your praise and to our good Bless us, Lord, in these moments. We offer and pray in the name of your anointed one, Christ Jesus. Amen. I read the psalm and I realize here that the psalmist is expressing something that is easy to appreciate, but not something to appropriate. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord 
than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, first of all, we would say, well, what does he mean by wicked? Well, I, I think wicked is any place outside of God's realm and awareness of God. So it's not just in places that we wouldn't want to go anyway, because that's not really saying anything. But he's saying he would rather be a doorkeeper, somebody of insignificance in the presence of God, in his house, in, in his temple, in his place of worship, than to dwell, even reign anywhere else in the world. And so as I read that statement, I recognize that it is a tremendously lofty statement, a wonderful religious platitude that many admire but few embrace. Because the psalmist in these verses is describing an experience in his worship that is somewhat foreign for many of us and from most Christians that I know and often not the experience that even I come having prepared myself all week long, not only to preach, but to come to worship. In fact, I tend to identify with this somewhat backwards, or at least I know many Christians that I know identify with his words backwards, because he says, better is one day in your courts, and there he's talking about God as the king, and he's just saying, better is one day in your presence than a thousand anywhere else. Now, I've heard a number of Christians talk about being in worship service that they said felt like a thousand years, but I've never (laughs) assumed that they meant that in a positive way. I could be mistaken, so my apologies to you if that was, you were just resonating with this particular passage. But the psalmist is expressing something that maybe we would long for if we believed that we could experience it but seems too foreign to even hope for. The idea that we wouldn't be looking at watches and wondering, how long do I have to sit here? How long are we going to continue with this? When am I going to get to go on with my day? But being so enraptured with God and his presence, as he has promised in his court, to recognize that privilege that he has established for us one day each week would be better than a thousand years in wherever it is that you would choose to be anyplace else. And that may be different. For Taylor, that might be on the golf course. Of course, with Cynthia as his partner or caddy now. But uh, for some of you, it could be camping. Traveling. Wherever it is that we would long to spend, and the idea of being able to spend all of our time here and then realize that our experience and our apprehension of God so far eclipses that that we would rather spend just a day than have our greatest desires. That's what the psalmist is describing here. That's what he gets out of coming into God's presence for worship. And yet our view is often somewhat different. Maybe it's because we are far more shaped by our culture than many of us would care to admit, or certainly uh, than we probably realize. And I have heard it described of our culture this way, both the culture at large and the many in the evangelical churches, that we are a people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. 
And I think that description is apt. Because we know we need to put in our time. We, we know that it's something that we need to do. And yet our attitudes about our worship is we come hoping that we get what we want out of it. I hope we sing songs that I like this week. I hope we talk about a subject that I have interest and I hope we don't talk too much about it or for too long. In one of his essays about worship, A.W. Tozer said, much that is called worship is not. And I think we need to consider what some of those things that we consider to be worship are that actually are not worship. You're a note taker, at least the first part we can look at. We're only going to look briefly at each of these, but you can recognize each of them with, uh, we'll begin with the, the letter E. The first thing we need to recognize is that worship is not entertainment. I'm not saying that worship cannot and should never be entertaining, but it is not the objective of worship to be entertainment. Not too long ago, someone showed me a YouTube video of a pastor from here on the peninsula that was preaching a message while jumping on a trampoline. Now, I have to confess that I know of no specific biblical prohibitions against doing that kind of a thing. <laughs> and his intentions may have been noble. I don't know the guy. I'm shaped somewhat by what I do know of him that Camper shared with me in an article my first week here. It was in the Daily Press, and they had just opened a branch campus, and in the interview, he had described their intent is to create a place for people who have never been churched or have been burned out by the church, and therefore they work very hard. And to illustrate his point that they work very hard to create that experience, he says, for instance, if you were to walk through our offices, you will not find a Bible on the desk of anyone on our staff. We are too busy working to have time for that. And they are busy creating an entertaining environment. One way to capture people's attention is to preach while jumping on a trampoline. Now, maybe his point, I don't even remember what his point was. His point might have been, right, life is bumpy. I have no idea. But the very problem is, is I doubt that anybody who was there remembers what his point was. It's just that they were declaring, cool, at our church, come. The guy will jump on a trampoline. Who knows what we're going to do next week? And please forgive me, I don't mean to mock him or whatever it is that is compelling, but it is appealing because in our culture we have elevated entertainment as the highest of goals. It's not entirely wrong. As I, as I was wrestling with the passage this week and, and even just this idea of addressing entertainment, I was reminded of a conversation that took place when I was in seminary. One of the more pious of my classmates, uh, you can read in parenthesis, um, obnoxious, um, self-righteous, um, but one of the more pious of my classmates, asked the professor, do you believe that entertainment in worship is a sin? And his response, I thought, was profound in both its insight and his humility. He said, you know, I'm not sure if entertainment is a sin. I'm pretty sure boring people to death is, though. 
And so there is an aspect that we come into the presence. The psalmist here is describing an experience that clearly he enjoys. He's not saying, well, I don't want to do it, but that's important, so I'd rather do this and get it over with and spend a thousand years having fun somewhere else. You see a delight permeating this psalmist's attitude about coming into the presence of the Lord, which is an overarching theme of what it is that we do when we come to worship. And while entertaining joy, taking delight in certain things, being glad when we sing a song that is particularly moving to you, whether it's because it is spoken to you in the past or the, the lyrics and the melody speaks to your heart, uh, the place of your heart right now, that part is not wrong, but that is not the primary objective when we worship. The second thing we deal with is not just entertainment, but evangelism, because the reality is most of the people who would embrace the entertainment approach to worship have as their motive a desire to see people come in and to hear about God, believing that the primary purpose of worship is evangelism. And so some who, particularly who are aligned with the seeker movement, motivated by that, think what is it going to take to get the most people to come in and so that they can be evangelized. Now, there is a part of that that certainly is very appropriate. Every worship service should have within it a very clear and a very definite presentation of the euangelion, the, the gospel, it's where evangelism takes place because the gospel is clearly presented whether that's through the liturgy or included in the songs or communicated through the message. The declaration of the gospel is not the same thing as attaching an altar call at the end. It's a recognition, a declaration of what Jesus Christ has done, what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself through the giving of a son who has given himself, laid down his life, taken upon himself our punishment, dying the death we deserve, and then rising to death to give us a life that he has earned. Professor of Worship Robert Weber calls that rehearsing the Christ event, which is central to every worship service. And so it's easy to be very sympathetic to the evangelistic intent. But even then, we need to also temper that, or at least balance that with the priority that God himself has. In this tremendous book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper rightly observes this. Mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not mission, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And so certainly evangelism is important, and it is an aspect of it, but it is not the goal of worship. Mission is, the goal of mission is worship, not the goal of worship being mission. How about experience? 
Some assume that the purpose of worship is experience, and it is to experience God's presence. And in genuine worship, people should experience a wide variety of deep and honest emotions. Joy is one. Relief or thankfulness. Recognize that what we celebrate is a grace that has removed our debt and reconciled us to God. Thankfulness. All. There's any number of emotions that we would experience when we come into God's presence. But some things that we need to consider about this is one is that nowhere in the Bible are we told that God evaluates worship by the experience the participants have. And then second is that our experiences themselves can be quite deceptive. A study by the University of Washington recently, well, a few years ago, has offered an explanation or an alternate explanation for some of what we would call our spiritual highs. And apparently in megachurch worship or large churches, large gatherings, and I'm certainly not opposed to that. I'm a product of one, and, um, and there is something majestic in being in the midst of hundreds or thousands of people who are singing and praising God. But what they found is that when gathered together, whether it's in a promise keep us or event or in some certain settings, that the combination of the music and the, the setting can actually trigger what they call an oxytocin cocktail in the brain that can become chemically addicted, addictive. And they said it's the same kind of chemical release in the brain that people experience when they are at um, major ball games or rock concerts or other things. And so it's not itself a wrong thing or not itself a bad thing. And it's not the explanation for spiritual highs as if there is no real spirituality that the presence of God can't bring that. What it is demonstrating is that if you can get the same experience in a large gathering of people that are gathered together where there are a church or they're calling themselves a church and by going to a Virginia Tech ball game or Ohio State, to be fair, and certainly at University of Tennessee, um, that's a... It trumps all of them. That maybe what we are feeling isn't a very accurate barometer of, the, of what it is that we are claiming to be having. Genuine worship carries very real emotions and very real things, and we do experience them. But there's also an objective reality of both what we are focusing on, what we do, and why we do it. And then the feelings respond to that objective reality, that objective truth, not just the experience themselves. And I'm not, again, belittling the experience and the joy and what you may feel in any of those environments. But we need to recognize that mere feeling, whether sentimentality or whatever we would describe it, the sense of the mountaintop, doesn't itself make it worship. How about education? This is a big one for us reformed people, probably shared only by dispensational people, that believe the whole purpose of worship is to come so that we can learn. Now, I know some of you believe that that's my belief, 
that we just kind of have some warm-ups for a half hour or so so that, you know, we get you primed and, and ready so that we can teach. But that's not the reality. And while in historic Christian worship, the sermon takes a central and an important place, it's not primarily for the purpose of education. It's part of the continuation of the presence of God because at least in our church, we hold the word of God with great reverence, believing that God has spoken through his spirit, has recorded it, preserved it, so that we can hear him in some mystical way no, meaning not in a weird mystical, as, I'm not meaning mystical as synonymous for weird, but in a way that we really can't explain. But that as it speaks to us, we not only know that this is what God has spoken to us, but in some way God himself can speak to us, despite whoever it is that may be speaking to us. I'm very conscious of that. I have shared at times, I don't know that I've said it here, but I've shared it with Camper before. I have said in probably most of the churches that I have served at one time or another, when we come to the uh, Old Testament passage dealing with Balaam and God speaking through uh, Balaam's um, donkey, Balaam's ass, is I don't get the miracle because God speaks through a donkey and ass every week pretty much here. So, um, I mean, that's, uh, but God can speak. And so it really makes no difference what I say, what Camper says, or the Ken or Ben, whoever it is that's within this pulpit. What matters is whether what we are communicating to you is consistent with what God has recorded. And there are things that we are taught, and there are things that we are reminded of. Education does take place, and I hope there's a sense in which that takes place today, but that is not my primary objective. It is important, but... It is only one aspect, and if we are learning but not growing closer to God, then we have learned what the Bible talks about in a way that puffs up, not builds up. What about exaltation? This one is perhaps the most difficult or perhaps the most confusing because it seems to be so close to what we do come to worship to do. I don't think I'm stepping out on any thin ice when I said, okay, we're not here for entertainment purposes in this church. I don't think that it was probably very challenging to most people that we're not here primarily for evangelistic purposes. I probably don't have to convince most of you we're not here primarily for educational purposes. But exaltation, the coming and lifting of our voices to God in praise, recognizing who he is, declaring what we know to be true, giving of ourselves to him, unloading ourselves fully before him, and giving to him praise that he is worthy to receive. That certainly is at the heart of what we do when we come and express our worship. So some may wonder, and I know there are some who, in conversations that I've had, who are hesitant to agree that I would call this to be an inadequate expression, not the primary purpose of our worship. But think about it this way. If God has designed this day primarily so that we can come in and praise him, it opens us up to the whole idea that there is something that God is lacking and that we and only we have the opportunity to give it to him. That there's something that we have that God needs. And that's different than saying there's something that we have that God desires. But to say that the purpose of worship is exaltation and that that itself encapsulate what we are here to do suggests that. 
Now, there's another aspect of that in which God knowing that we have the need to express our gratitude, our thankfulness, has created this day so that we can come and to exalt him. But I think that's moving us into another direction and moving us subtly into what I would consider to be our purpose for worship, which is not merely any of those e-words. We come into worship each week to be renewed in the covenant of grace that God has established with his people and continues to renew over and over again because we are in need of such renewal. See, there's nothing wrong with any of those E-words. There's nothing wrong inherently with any one of them. But all of them, any of them, are just reductionistic if we assume that they are the primary purpose. But all of them have a place when we come before God to worship when our objective is to be renewed in the covenant of grace that he has made with us. Now, what is worship as covenant renewal? It requires that we recognize that God relates to his people on the basis of covenant, that he has called a people from out of this world, not because they were better than anybody else, but he chose initially through the people of Israel to make a nation out of people who were insignificant and bless them and keep them and set them apart and guide them by his rules, his law, for multiple reasons. One, to demonstrate his own character that would be on display for the entire world. And then second, that through them, and the way that he related to them, to draw the nations of the world to say, the gods that we've concocted in our own minds, they are as nothing to the living and true God, because look at the way that he works, blesses, and even disciplines those that he loves. God relates to his people on the basis of covenant, and we celebrate that in a variety of different ways. But God relates to us based on this. He calls the people and all who have joined him, he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then the covenant has aspects. You will do this and I will do this. So God calls us into his covenant, promises to bless us and to keep us, promises to provide for us and to meet our needs, promises to enable us to grow in his grace, and he will provide everything that we need in order that we would be what he has designed us to be. That's the promise of God in the covenant. And the amazing thing about that covenant is that we as a people from Israel on, probably the greatest benefit of the Old Testament is this, we see a people that are messed up. And then we look at them and say, they are messed up, so it's a good thing we're not them, they're us, we are them. And God had every right to reject that people, to destroy that people. But then we are reminded that our God in his covenant relationship says this. Even when you are faithless, I will remain faithful. And so no matter who you are, as you have strayed, as you have fallen, as you have gone from God, when you recognize that you rightly deserve to be alienated from God or even God's enemy. God says, if you are ready to confess, ready to repent, ready to receive grace and be restored, come, come to me. Let's meet. Let's talk. Let's get it all out and be reminded that you exist and you flourish by my grace, by my providence, which are expressions of my love, because that's who I am. But I'm also holy. So none of this is a matter of saying, who cares? 
It's a matter of recognizing your need, not only the need that you had to become saved in the first place, but your day-to-day, moment-by-moment, constant need of living and receiving my grace and being renewed in it. God has established this day that we might recognize that we are blessed and rest not only from our labors, but rest in his grace. We are reminded that we are in need of grace. We are reminded that he is the giver of grace and that whatever it is that blocks us from enjoying the fellowship with God, there is nothing that is so great that it cannot be removed and there is nothing that would keep us from coming into his presence unless we, in the hardness of our hearts and the desires of our minds, choose to just go through the motions and to yet give our hearts elsewhere. God calls us week in and week out to be reminded of who he is. And so we come and we do exalt him. We do sing his praises. He's worthy to receive them and we have need to be reminded of that so that we can experience that. He comes and he invites us to be very real before God. And we come and we confess before him not only the ways in which we have sinned, but how the brokenness is in our life are affecting us and tempting us and causing us pain. And we lay them out before God to be reminded that he not only identifies because we see the person of Jesus Christ who has experienced everything that we have experienced except he didn't sin. And then his response to our sin is to take the penalty and to die for us. And then to point to the fact that he's conquered that penalty, conquered that death by rising again, which becomes the hope, the anchor of our faith that we point to everything that Jesus has done for us. And then we either believe or we don't believe. Did Jesus die for our sins or didn't he? And as we wrestle with, okay, I know this, I know this is true, and yet my heart finds it either too good to be true, I don't deserve it, we wrestle through all of that. God and his Holy Spirit is at work within us to point us and saying, it's time. Believe. Believe and be free. And he says, because I love you, I will show you how life works and I will reveal to you the way that I've designed this world. I will reveal to you the brokennesses of your heart and in this life. And then if you will walk in my ways, you will find joy. In fact, you'll find joy that sometimes doesn't make any sense because you can experience joy in walking with my ways and walking in my presence even when life and the world around you stinks. each week we come to be reminded of that. Each week we come not only so that we know in our heads, but so that we can experience that, so that we can go through the motions of shedding our guilt and receiving grace. And that's where I would say covenant renewal certainly involves a high dose of exaltation, but exaltation doesn't allow us room to receive anything from God. And if worship itself, which pretty much everyone ought to agree in, is primarily for the glory of God, that we come to glorify God, we need to recognize that while God is glorified through the praises that we offer, he is most glorified when we recognize our dependence upon him and that he is good and that he loves us and he has given his own son and everything else that we could possibly need is in him. When we are renewed and reminded of that, we don't go through the motions. We are now renewed and prepared to lap out everything and to experience his grace. 
Why do I share that this morning? It's not my plan or my desire simply to try to get you to see something that maybe you haven't seen before. I don't know whether you have or not. To get you to agree with me as much as I would enjoy that. It's because my desire is for us and for you and for me to experience what I believe the scripture designs our purpose when we come into God's presence. That we can experience something greater than we would imagine which then leads into more exaltation as we celebrate the evangel in the presence of God. And I suspect that as we are shaped by that reality, as we are experiencing and envisioning the awesomeness of our God, we will more and more be able to be a people who will agree with the psalmist that to live in this way, to live with this experience, to exalt our God, to be in his presence, learning about him, is better to spend that day, that hour, hour and a half, sometimes hour 45 minutes. I won't go, I don't have the guts to go past that. It should be. It should be that we should be able to say, people come up, why are we cutting it off at an hour and a half? I can honestly say, I've never had anybody ask me that. <laughs> Even when I'm not preaching. So, we can agree with the psalmist, we can experience, we can express what he expresses from the bottom of our heart. When we know why we have come and we see a bigger vision of God's grace in creating this day and this purpose for us to come. That's my prayer and that's my vision for us as a church here. Not an excuse to go longer in our services, but to go deeper in our experience of God's grace. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have granted us this day your presence in every element in the worship of your glory. The words that I share that are faithful resonate. But may your spirit speak that which is true. That we would all have the same excitement about this day each week, this hour, this time with you that the psalmist expresses. Bless us with that. For you have already blessed us with faith, grace, and your presence. We offer our thanks to you, even in worship. Amen.